Candlebox, far behind on Island 1069 WIISQS. Good morning, I'm Gwen Filosa, joining you, I'm I'm here for It's Too Early, that's the name of the show. We're broadcasting right off Duval Street in beautiful Key West. It's raining, but it's still okay to live here. It's still beautiful and uh, still amazing place to be. Super excited to have my guest this morning. She is Executive Director of Miami Waterkeeper. We're going to talk a lot about uh, the state, the conditions of our water, and the challenges. And Rachel Silverstein, good morning. Good morning, Gwen. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for thanks for taking the time. Now, I always ask the guest, is it too early for you? <laughs> uh, I have little kids, so we've been up for hours. have been already. up since four. <laughs> they get you up at four. Yeah. They demand food. They this demand, is like lunchtime for me. They, <laughs> but still, thanks for for taking the time. Now, this is new to me, Miami Waterkeeper. Um, t- tell us all about the the mission and and what's going on. Absolutely. So, Miami Waterkeeper is a nonprofit focused on protecting the water you love, and specifically, we work in Miami Dade and Broward County. Uh, but we also do work in the Keys as well, um, and we've worked on things like uh, fertilizer ordinance for Monroe County and other initiatives for coral protection, things like that. Um, and we um, focus primarily on three major issues. One is keeping the water clean. Two are protecting our habitats where our really unique animals in this environment live, like coral reefs, seagrasses, mangroves, wetlands. Um, and then three, we work on sea level rise issues. And of course, sea level rise issues affect all the other issues that we work on yeah. and, and how we live in this region. Um, and then we have three major approaches to tackle each of those issues. We do community outreach and education. So there's lots of ways for people to get involved in the work we do. And I can talk a little bit more about that as um as the interview goes on, if you would like. And then we do scientific research. We actually monitor the bacteria levels in the water at 22 locations every single week. And then um, we publish peer-reviewed literature on issues that affect water quality and habitats and sea level rise. And then we also do political and legal advocacy. So if somebody's polluting our waterways or breaking environmental laws, we will actually go to court to protect them. Wow. Because it's... um. It's like Miami Waterkeeper is you have to be kind of like an investigator and then a scientist and then an advocate. It's there's a lot of a lot of things going on. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And um, we've, you know, done everything from, you know, talking to kindergartners to talking to senators to um, being in, in federal court against some some pretty big actors like the Army Corps of Engineers who were illegally harming our coral reefs during the Port Miami expansion, things like that. Now, now you have a PhD in marine biology and fisheries. Uh, you, you, your research has focused on the effect of climate change on reef corals and, and all kinds of things. Uh, you're, I mean, you know a lot about these issues. Are, has anything gotten better in the last 10 years? Or <laughs> Please tell us. Um, there have been small steps forward, um, but also some steps backward um, in terms of watching the decline of the ecosystem and um, particularly for corals, which is, you know, my favorite thing to work on, what my background is in, and really what we call the ecosystem architect, um, because they build the habitat that thousands of other uh, creatures and critters live in and around. And it's much like the trees in the rainforest. If you lose the trees in the rainforest, you lose all the animals that live them, live in them. So corals, both an animal um, and a habitat. And we have, we're blessed here in Florida, 
to have the only near shore coral reef in the continental United States. So mm-hmm. we, we literally have this beautiful reef in our backyard and it's disappearing before our eyes. Um, since the 1970s, over 80% of it has disappeared. And that's wow. probably an underestimate at this point because those numbers are a few years old. And what's happened to the reef, even in the last 10 years, has been pretty devastating. Um, We did have the Port Miami dredging project that we published uh, literature showing that it killed at least um, half a million corals without permission and probably really double that. And near the Port of Miami, during the dredging, there was a massive disease outbreak Uh, We don't yet know whether or not it was related to the dredging or exacerbated by the dredging, but that coral disease outbreak has been extraordinarily deadly for corals and and has spread across the entire Florida reef tract around the Caribbean, and it has killed hundreds of millions of corals. Um, And we still don't really have an effective cause or cure, although people have been rescuing corals, literally taking healthy corals out of the water keeping them in labs to preserve the genetic diversity. People have been trying to treat them with different kinds of antibiotics and, and things like that. But um, the, the loss of coral just in the last few years has been completely devastating. It's when, when I first, I got down here 10 years ago, but still, and I went snorkeling, you know, I love going snorkeling. And then I saw photos of what it looked like in the seventies and eighties, the under underwater. Mm -hmm. It was just shocking. I mean, it still shocks me that, Things looked, I mean, it was this colorful, beautiful, you know, vivid colors and all this life, you know, all the, all this plant life and fit. And then now it's like, oh, hi, it's gray. Um, but- and that's a very common um, phenomenon that we actually have a term for that in ecology called shifting baselines. And if you come and you see to Florida and you see our reef for the first time, it still looks magical and like this sure. otherworldly, beautiful experience full of life. Um, and then that becomes your baseline for what a reef should look like. But then when you actually see the photos of what the reefs were like in the 70s and 80s and and before, um, and you understand then how much has been lost. Um, and so part of ecology is always trying to reach back to understand wh- and where our baseline should be for for recognizing decline or or recovery of a system. Now, there's a, a lot of activity down here, uh, various groups planting, you know, baby coral that, that they grow mm-hmm. in a lab. It, and it seems like, you know, what what kind of difference can that make? It, wasn't it going to take a long time or is it it's, is it just a, the only thing they can do? Or, I mean, what do you think about the baby coral? So, so those are fantastic efforts. And um, people are putting a lot of work in and have made a lot of progress in the technology to do that really, really effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and in cases where the conditions are still okay for corals, that can be a big help to bringing corals back because it, it takes a long time for corals to grow. They grow very slowly. And if we can speed up that initial process and get them to a size where they're likely to survive before we put them out in the water, it can really help. Um, but it's also very expensive to do that and very labor intensive because you have to literally take one piece of coral at a time and put it back out on the reef. Um, and then, you know, people are really looking at ways to scale those activities. And there's some really exciting research thinking about, you know, I saw actually in the Australian government has put a lot of money into coral restoration as well, looking at the Great Barrier Reef, and they've hired a lot of engineers. And I saw a talk by one of the engineers, and he was saying, if we can make, you know, a billion Lego pieces a day, mm-hmm. we should be able to make a billion <laughs> corals, baby corals a day, I like and it. get them out on the reef um, in in a way that, 
we can, you know, plan a million in a day or, or more. And so they're really thinking, you know, how, how to seed, reseed reefs to get them to regrow. But, but fundamentally the question is, are our oceans supporting corals right now? Um, and there's some argument that, you know, because of climate change, the oceans are getting too warm for corals and they're getting, it's getting too acidic for corals as well. And in parts of the Florida reef tracks right now, like in the northern parts, um, Miami and north, the reef is actually dissolving in the winter months. So it's, it's eroding faster than it's growing. Um, and that's because the ocean chemistry has changed that it doesn't really support the growth of corals as much anymore. So if that's the case and, and climate change continues to get worse and worse and worse and worse, we have to have corals. We can only put corals back out in the ocean that can survive in those conditions. So there's a lot of work trying to make corals more resilient to warming oceans and ocean acidification. Um, but it, it's, it's a struggle because that's not the natural environment that corals want to live in. Um, and that's why they're having such a hard time. So the restoration is certainly an extremely important piece of the puzzle and people are doing, doing great work with it. But we also have to fix the reasons that corals are declining. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, what can the what can people who who aren't, you know, scientists, what can the average person living in South Florida or anywhere? What what can what can we do? To, what, what are some positive uh, steps we can take? So there's a lot you? of things we can do. Um, and we have a lot of information about this on our website as well. MiamiWaterkeeper.org. Uh, and there's tons of ways that you can take action, get involved and learn. And one of the best things you can do is to learn about these issues and understand what's going on. So, you know, the Keys recently did a major effort to remove septic tanks mm -hmm. because septic tanks leach waste into the waterways. And there was evidence that it was reducing water quality and affecting the reef. Um, so that was a fantastic step and we're already seeing water quality start to improve as a result of the sewering of all those septic systems. In Miami-Dade, we still have 120,000 septic tanks and we believe that that's the number one pollution source in Biscayne Bay for Miami and is really leading to a decline in seagrass, um, uh, which means that the system is very, very vulnerable to having low dissolved oxygen levels. Um, and when you get low dissolved oxygen levels, you can get fish kills. And that's exactly what we're seeing in Biscayne Bay, especially when the water gets warm and it, it holds less oxygen when it gets warm. Um, so just last week we had a smaller fish kill than we did last summer. And last summer we had over 27,000 fish die in Biscayne Bay in a matter of five days. Oh um, so we're trying to prevent that by working to get rid of septic tanks. That kind of pollution can also come from sewage leaks. We have to make sure the sewage infrastructure is sound and isn't cracked and leaking. Um, and then we also have to think about stormwater. Mm -hmm. And stormwater is water that falls on the ground when it rains, that isn't absorbed into the ground, and it runs off down the street, down a storm drain or into a canal or waterway. And it brings with it all the pollution and contamination that's in the street. So grease, oil, pet waste, debris, leaves, all of that um, runs, runs off down the drains and goes into our waterways. That's another major source of pollution uh, that we have to control that's getting worse with sea level rise too because we're the stormwater systems aren't working. We're just getting more water on the streets from flooding and mm -hmm. uh, therefore more contaminated water. Um, and then lastly, fertilizer. So septic, sewer, stormwater, and fertilizer. And fertilizer is really the easiest one 
to address, um, at least from a residential and commercial um, use perspective, not really agriculture. So we, we don't touch agricultural activities, but we have worked with Miami-Dade and municipalities, Miami-Dade and Monroe County, Isla Mirada on a strong fertilizer ordinance to reduce the amount of fertilizer that's getting into the water. And the fertilizer that gets into the water is fertilizing algae in the water and leading to algae mm. blooms and other water quality issues. So we have to make sure we're limiting that. Um, and the fertilizer uh, ordinances, the basic tenants are that you should never fertilize during the summer months from about May 15th to October 15th, because in our area, it's so rainy during those months. As soon as you put the fertilizer on the ground, it's rained before the plants can use it and it immediately becomes pollution. So it's a waste of time and money for you to apply the fertilizer oh, during those because okay. the plants aren't using it. Um, and it, you're unknowingly contributing to water pollution. So just never use fertilizer in those in those months. And then you should never at any time of year apply it within about 20 feet of a waterway or storm drain. Because then when it does rain or you water your lawn, it's going to run off um, and get into the storm drain. You also never need to use phosphorus, which is a major component of fertilizer because our soils are so rich in phosphorus. The plants aren't going to take up any more. And you can use about 65% slow-release nitrogen. And the, the higher the slow-release, the better, because that prevents it from all running off at once. And it'll stay on the land better. Um, so that those are things that people can do to be the sort of a smart water-friendly fertilizer user. And then similar to that, to really think about the fact that whatever's on the ground is going to end up in the water when it rains. So, yeah, you know, it, never put... Stop littering, everybody. Yeah, so never dump in the street. It's all going to end up in the storm drain. It all drain. goes to the ocean. Yep, don't, don't put chemicals in the street, grease, um, you know, even soap to wash, wash your cars and boats. Oh. Um, make sure you're using... Um, uh, protection so that the soap isn't getting into the storm drains. Um, all those things are really bringing contamination to the waterways. Uh, we also have a program that you can do called the Thousand Eyes on the Water. And that is a, a, a training course that takes about an hour to do and it's free and you can take it online on our website. And um, it trains you to observe, document and report pollution. So you might be going about your daily life, walking your dog on a kayak and see something that doesn't look quite right. We train you what's okay and what's not okay on the water and then what information we need to respond to a pollution report. So that's another really great way to get engaged and to help. And you never know when you might see a sewage leak or an oil spill or, you know, rare wildlife that needs to be reported and documented. So that's a really great way to get involved too. Great, great. I have one last question. I'm kind of keeping you over. Sorry. Um, I drink the tap water. Do, 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 do you buy the water? Or? Um, I, so I try um, never to drink bottled water. Okay. Um, because bottled water is basically just tap water that's been sitting in plastic um, for oh, a long gross. time. So, uh, yeah, so you know, it, it's filtered, but, you know, you can get filters in your home, too. So mm -hmm. you really want to avoid um, creating more plastic waste by drinking out of bottled water. Um, and also like any, you know, leaching that might come from the plastic into the water. We have Miami water keeper water bottles that are reusable. If anybody's interested in stopping the, uh, plastic water bottle habit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so we do, we drink the tap water. We actually have a really good quality, uh, drinking water here in South Florida. Cause it all comes from underground in the aquifer. 
Okay. So all the holes in the rocks store the drinking water. They pull it out, um, and then it goes into our taps. But it is really easy to contaminate. So we have to make sure we keep the protection um, of our water right now. And actually, the Florida Keys drinking water, it comes from um, Homestead. And it's really near the Turkey Point power plant. And there's a contaminated plume of water coming underground from the power plant. And the Florida Keys Aqueduct Authority is actually in litigation right now with FPL or challenging a permit that FPL is getting from the state of Florida to operate, trying to get that plume cleaned up before it threatens the drinking water supply for the Keys. So there are concerns of drinking water. Right now, it's in really good shape, but we have to stay really vigilant to make sure it, it stays that way. Great, great. Rachel Silverstein, Executive Director of Miami Waterkeeper. Thank you so much for coming on. I know I kept you late, but it's it's my way. It's what I do. And, <laughs> Thanks um, for having me. Hope we can have you on again sometime. You, you, you know a lot. It. All right. Take care. Look forward to it. Take care. Bye. Bye. And you can go to MiamiWaterkeeper.org. Org. They have an amazing website, tells you everything you need to know about how you can get involved, the programs they have, and um, all kinds of news about environmental uh, issues. We're going to play a song, and then I'll come back and do your headlines and weather forecast. I think it's going to rain. I think, um, that's my prediction of the weather forecast. I haven't looked it up yet, but I'm, I think it's going to rain. This is Avenged Sevenfold, Beast and the Harlot. It's my favorite song title of the week. On Island 1069, stick around.